Ladies and gentlemen, this is going to be a very special edition of the I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist radio program and podcast. Back in Christmas of 2016, I interviewed Dr. Tim Keller, and many of you know Dr. Keller died about a week ago. And I learned so much from him that I wanted to rebroadcast this program for you. It's an evergreen broadcast. You're going to learn a lot. Here is Dr. Tim Keller. Ladies and gentlemen, how can you make sense of God to secular people, to skeptical people? Can you just give them reasons, just give them arguments? That approach doesn't work very often, does it? No, reason alone usually is not enough. There are often cultural, emotional, and volitional obstacles in the way of belief. So the question is, the question we're going to deal with today is, how can we address those obstacles to move the skeptic toward Christ? Well, there's probably nobody in America who knows how to reach skeptics better than my guest today. In fact, since 1989, he's been engaging skeptics and then pastoring them in the heart of one of the most skeptical areas of the world, and that would be New York City. And as it, as you've heard, if you can make it there, you can make it anywhere. So my guest, of course, is Dr. Tim Keller, the founding pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church, which has a weekly attendance of over 5,000 across three and now soon to be four locations in Manhattan. Tim has also helped start over 250 churches in about 48 different cities. And in his spare time, he writes New York Times best-selling books to sell over a million copies, such as Reason for God, which I think is already an apologetics classic. In fact, it's always just number two behind Mere Christianity. It's right there on Amazon, always way up at the top. Great book. And then Prodigal God, which you may have also heard of, which is one of the most profound books you'll ever read on the true nature of Christianity. Now, the book we'll be discussing today is an equally outstanding book. It's actually a bit of a prequel to Reason for God. It's called Making sense of God, an invitation to the skeptical. Tim, Merry Christmas to you, and it's a pleasure having you on the show. I'm glad to be here. Merry Christmas to you, yeah. Now, Tim, you, I've heard you say that uh, making sense of God is a prequel to reason for God. Well, what does making sense of God address that reason for God doesn't? Well, uh, reason for God is, um, uh, is almost completely dedicated to the question um, is Christianity true? Is it rationally true? Is there evidence why I, as a rational person, ought to believe it? Uh, making sense of God is addressing a question, why should I care if it's true? Why, uh, you know, so what if it's true or not? Why would it even be relevant to me? Why isn't religion actually a bad thing? You know, maybe I shouldn't want it to be true. I, I got the idea for well, for a lot of reasons, but there's a place where Blaise Pascal in one of his Ponsets says that um, before a person is probably open to really listening to a good case for Christianity being true, they've got to see that it would be great if it was. Mm. And I do think that most people, uh, in at least in my city, don't think it would be great if Christianity was true. <laughs> they, they, they really right. don't want to go there because they'd be afraid it might be true, and they don't want it to be true. So that's why I would say making sense of God is a, kind of a prequel. Well, what I really like about it, well, there's a lot to like about it, but it's not a typical apologetics book that brings facts from the outside, you know, facts from science, philosophy, and history. I mean, it does some of that, but it does much more. Uh, the book, Making Sense of God, friends, for those that are listening here, is I think it brings facts from the inside. 
In other words, it awakens a sense of transcendence that most of us have latent in our intuitions and desires. And Tim, you identify at least six transcendent desires, which are things that we really can't live without. What, what are those six that you go through in the book? Yeah, it's, um, it's meaning, meaning and life purpose, satisfaction, uh, identity, freedom, justice, and hope. Mm-hmm. And basically, I'm trying to say, uh, nobody can live without these things. So every worldview uh, or culture says, here's how you get them, because nobody can live without them. Uh, you've got to have a meaning in life. You've got to have uh, you know, some kind of sense of satisfaction and fulfillment. You've got to feel like I'm free. You've got to feel like I know who I am. You've got to have some basis for justice, understanding justice, doing justice, calling for justice, and you need to have hope for the future. And what I'm trying to show in the uh, in the book is that Christianity gives you better resources than you've got right now if you're not a Christian for every one of those six things. And of course, that would lead people to say, hey, that's great, but how do I know it's true? Well, that's another book. Well, you cover that in the last couple of chapters. But the last just, two chapters, I try yeah. to do a little recapitulation of uh, Reason for God, and I also try to add some stuff that I didn't get into Reason for God since I wrote that eight years ago. Yes, and you also debunk a couple of myths before you get into the six transcendent desires. Uh, the first one, it, it, right, right in the beginning of the book, you say it's a myth that religion is dying out and the world's getting more secular. D- deal with yeah. that one first. How, how is that a myth? Well, because we're right now in in America, um, there definitely has been a what I would call a a collapse of the mushy middle. And the mushy middle is the people who would nominally be Christians who would say, "Yes, I go to a church." I they're not very devout. They, they may not very observant. They may go on Christmas and Easter only. And for years, there was a huge percentage of Americans that would say, "I'm I'm a Christian," even though they weren't very observant or devout, that's sort of collapsing. So uh, those kind of, the, the children of those people are largely saying no religious preference. So the numbers of people who say, I'm secular, I don't have any religion, are going up. And, that, and that's always reported in the news media. And that gives people the impression that the world's getting more secular. But across the whole world, uh, everybody who knows demographics, everybody who knows uh, about these things knows that actually uh, religion's growing, devout religion is growing, and the actual number of people over in the next 30 or 40 years, the number of people in the world who say, I'm secular, I have no religious preference, the percentage of those people is going to go down. Hmm. The second myth, which uh, you have an entire chapter on, is uh, the idea that secular people base their beliefs completely on reason and religious people base theirs completely on faith. Why is that a myth? Yeah, that, that basically I'm trying to say you've got a set of beliefs. If you're, if you're a doubter, if you're a skeptic, if you're a secular person, you actually are not, you shouldn't say, you have belief I don't. The fact is that secularism is a set of beliefs not recognized as beliefs. So my idea, that's, that's the main thesis. Secularism is a set of beliefs not recognized as beliefs. And by the way, people I've, skeptics have read the book, that is where they push back, I think, harder than anywhere else. They, that is very threatening to them. So that's, that, that's the point of the second chapter. And it, it kind of reminds me of something Philip Johnson, the Berkeley law professor, said uh, 
uh, back uh, 25 years ago when he wrote Darwin on Trial, or it may have been his book, mm-hmm. uh, Reason in the Balance. He said, he, is who is, he who is a skeptic in one set of beliefs is a true believer in another set of beliefs. And it seems to yep. me, Tim, and I'm, I'm sure... You, you, you unpack exactly. this you unpack this in in, in making sense of God um, but isn't yeah. materialism really their positive belief they believe in materialism they may believe in multiverses they may believe in macroevolution mm-hmm. or quantum vacuums yep yeah see by the way those those books by Johnson are great oh they are yeah they're really they are great books and that's exactly what I'm trying to say there I'm trying to say like for example when somebody says well look Science is the only arbiter of, of truth and reality. It's got to be proven scientifically, otherwise it's not true. And of course, here's the problem with that. How do you prove that proposition? Not scientifically. scientifically. <laughs> I, I, yeah, that's called... So, yeah, in, in other words, there's no way to empirically verify that everything has to be empirically, ver- be ver- empirically verified to be true. It's a philosophical statement when you say that. and Or the idea of... Uh, you know, we were evolved out of, uh, through, you know, nature, red tooth and claw, survival of the fittest. The only reason we're here is that we, uh, you know, the strong eat the weak. And now we have to honor everybody's human rights. We have to treat everybody with equality and dignity. Friedrich Nietzsche said that is a huge leap of faith. <clears throat> and, I mean, to say that while we have is materialism, there's no God, there's no truth, there's no objective, you know, uh, moral values, but we still need to honor everybody that's a huge leap of faith. So basically, I'm trying to say your view of rationality, your view of science, your view of morality, and 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 all that. Those are all beliefs. And so, you and we, religious people, skeptical people, we both have beliefs. The burden of proof is on both of us, not just on Christians. Exactly. We're talking to Dr. Tim Keller. His new book, "Making Sense of God," a fabulous read, a prequel to "Reason for God." You need to get. We'll have more with Dr. Keller right after the break. You're listening to Cross Examine with Frank Turek on the American Family Radio Network. We're back in two. Don't go away. Welcome back to Cross Examined on the American Family Radio Network. I'm Frank Turek. Our guest today is Dr. Tim Keller of Reason for God, of Prodigal God, of the new book called Making Sense of God, an Invitation to the Skeptical. And for those of you who have listened to this program, you know I've mentioned uh, Dr. Keller before. It's a privilege having him on the program. And uh, this new book you need to get is a prequel, actually. You know, Star Wars came out last night, so uh, Dr. Keller is going in the in the vein of Star Wars here. He's doing prequels now. This is before Reason for God, and this is the kind of book that you can give to somebody, and it's not just going to be an avalanche of facts supporting Christianity. It's going to be some of that, but it's really going to get into some very existentially relevant issues that everyone has to deal with, including satisfaction, hope, justice, and many other things, and that's what we're talking about today. Uh, Tim, your um, chapter on meaning, chapter three here I'm looking at, you talk about meaning, and you point out that we all seek a purpose beyond ourselves, and that there's a psychological need for meaning and purpose, and there's even scientific evidence, for those secularists out there, that people who adopt a purpose or a cause outside of themselves do better medically. How do we get secular people to recognize that there's a transcendent meaning and purpose to life so they're at least open maybe even motivated to to say investigate christianity 
Well, in that book, what I tried to do <clears throat> was say, first of all, if somebody says, can I have meaning in life without God? Um, I know Christians are supposed to say, no, you can't. But when I start, you know, if you read the chapter, I start by saying, yes, sure you can. But there's, it's a different kind of meaning than what you can have through the Christian faith. And I said, there's, the two differences are, one is, there's more than one, more than two, but the one is, you're talking about uh, created meaning versus discovered meaning. Created meaning is, I decide I want to be a, you know, get a gold medal in swimming, or I decide I want to help the poor in Africa. And so my meaning in life is something I just create. Discovered meaning is, you were made by God uh, to, uh, to, to do these things. And that when you do them, you've discovered the purpose. It's like a fish who, um, when you're in the water, the fish is designed for the water and the fish is happy and, and, and darting about. But if you put the fish up on land, the fish is not experiencing meaning in life. It's not built for the land. It's going to flop around and die. So I said, those are two different views of meaning. One is discovered, one is created. And then I just go through and, and compare and say, uh, discovered meaning is very fragile because suffering can come along and take it totally away from you. Created meaning isn't fragile because if the meaning in life is to please God, then suffering can actually make it easier for you to please God. And, and it gives you, uh, gives you a reference point outside of this world where it's created meaning can be totally destroyed by suffering and it's more durable. And, it, and so I go through and just compare the two kinds of meaning and say, wouldn't it be great if you had this kind of transcendent meaning? You'd be much more buoyant, much less fragile much more durable, much more fulfilled. That's kind of how I do. It doesn't say that Christianity is true, just shows how great it would be if it was true, which is the way in which this whole book works. And you make an excellent case that the fragmentation and division in our society really results from the fact that people are trying to... Um, yeah. they're, they're trying to go on created meaning rather than discovered meaning. Can you unpack that a little yeah. bit for us? Well, it, it, it's, it's not very socially cohesive. If, if you've got a bunch of people saying, my meaning in life is to make as much money as I can and, and, and not care about anybody else, but just you know, have 20 houses and spend it all on me. Then you've got some other people saying, well, my meaning in life is to try to help the poor and try to, uh, you know, people who have had, had a terrible life. And, well, you're working against each other. And so whenever you don't, when you have a society which everybody can choose whatever their meaning is, you do not have a cohesive society anymore. Mm. You, you quote Nietzsche in here. You say that Nietzsche is calling people to worship themselves, to grant the same faith and authority to themselves that they once put in God. What did he mean by that? Well, Nietzsche was a very consistent atheist, and, but not totally, because nobody can be, by the way. Right. Uh, uh, but he was very consistent in saying that people who say you should live for uh, the poor, you should live for your fellow man, you should be living to make the world a better place. Nietzsche says, that's silly. If there's no God, then you're still holding on to Christian values. He said, the idea that you need to uh, care for the poor and help other people, that ethical idea made sense in a Christian universe in which you had a holy God, a loving God, who made all human beings in the, their, you know, his image. That made sense. But today... Frankly, you can decide what is right or wrong for you. You are like God. If there is no God, then you are God. And if there's no moral norms, then nobody. you, you can just make up your own moral norms. And so he was very consistent up to a point, and he pushes other people today in a very uncomfortable way. Secular people do not like reading Nietzsche, because he pushes them <laughs> right. and says, you really, there's no reason for you to be good or nice or mm -hmm. kind or work for, for justice. No reason at all. 
Gee, you can be like God. Where have we heard that before? <laughs> That's, I wonder that, whether Nietzsche was being ironic when he said yeah, that. Yeah, right. He, he, must, he, he must have known, hey, you know, me, you know, Friedrich Serpent and Friedrich Nietzsche said the same thing. <laughs> now, Tim, I, I think this created meaning and created morality is really at the heart of why a lot of people are not Christians. Yeah. I, I, I speak at a lot of college campuses. Yeah. I co-wrote a book with uh, Dr. Norman Geiser called I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. So, oh, yeah, it's a good book. We do these presentations on college campuses, and when the skeptics come up to the microphone, if they're a little bit hostile, I'll ask them this question. I'll say, if Christianity were true, would you become a Christian? Now, they normally hesitate, and sometimes they'll actually say no, and they'll eventually admit that the reason they're saying no is because they have a moral objection to God. In other words, they don't want there to be a God because God will make a moral demand on them, and, and they'd rather be God. They're not really on a truth quest or on a happiness quest, and they think... This moral freedom, and we'll talk about freedom in a minute because you, you cover it in a whole chapter in the book. This moral freedom that they have, what by their own definition, their own created morality, will somehow make them happy. Have you found in your dealings there in New York City that many of the skeptics that you deal with, it really comes down to a moral objection. It's not an intellectual objection. Yeah, that I don't, it hasn't changed much. Actually, when I was a college student, which, as you may know, is a long time ago, 65, I mean, I'm 66, so that was a long time ago. It was, this, it was true back then, even in a much more traditional society where fewer people were willing to come right out and say, I, you know, I'm a skeptic. Most people went to church, but when you talk to them about being a committed Christian, it was a moral objection, just like, just like you say. Mm-hmm. How do you go about dealing with that as a pastor? I'm, I'm sure you're, you know, counseling people, you have one... One spouse who's a believer, another spouse isn't, and you can you recognize that the spouse who's yeah. not a believer has a moral objection. How do you deal with that? Well, I, you know, I, I, it's always, frankly, there's always a background. One, one thing I learned from Michael Ramsden, you know, Rocky Zacharias. Sure, yeah. He always says when when you get a um, an objection, it could be like, uh, I don't want to lose my freedom, or I don't believe in a God who allows evil and suffering. He says there's there's about Ten different paths that a person could have trod to get to that question. There's something behind it, some experiences, some issues, and you probably need to ask counter questions to to get a better idea of where the person's coming from before you answer it. Because there's generally a lot of different ways to answer it. Um, I think you know when I talked about the fish, for example, mm-hmm. I used to say if you believe there's a god or even a possibility of a god, then if you're created, you're like the fish and that the fish is not free, really, to be anywhere but in water. If, 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 if somehow we feel like it's an exercise of freedom for the fish to go on land, the fish is going to die. And so I would use that. I'd say, if there's a God, then you were made for certain things, and you will experience freedom when you submit to the, your design. Just like the fish, in a way, experiences more freedom in the water when it's actually submitting to its design. So I try to say that freedom is not the absence of constraints, it's finding the right ones, the ones that fit in with your nature. Now, if they say there is no God, then we go somewhere else. But generally, you're right in saying, they say, well, there might be a God, but I don't want to, I don't want to submit to him. And that's when I use the fish illustration to say, but it's the only way to really be free. In fact, in chapter five, it's the chapter on freedom. And you point out that freedom in the modern sense uh, is not the same as say what our founders may have meant by it. How has the view of freedom changed? Well, it's what, I think it's what Isaiah Berlin or somebody like that 
called it's it's uh, our, our our modern view of freedom is is actually negative freedom, negative liberty. We we define it strictly in terms of freedom from, hmm. strictly in terms of I am as I am free to the degree that I am liberated from any restraints at all, and um, that's. What I try to—I think the, the main point I try to make in the book is that destroys the ability to love somebody. Mm. I said, it, if that's your only definition of freedom—that it's freedom from, not freedom for, not not freedom to do the right thing, but just freedom from any constraints on my on my behaviors, my decisions, my choices—then you actually have a definition of freedom that would make it impossible to be in love. I mean, even even to date somebody, even if you're dating somebody, you can't go out of town without telling the other person you're going out of town. You already you start to lose your independence the minute you start to get into any kind of love relationship, and and so when you define freedom as negative liberty, which would just be maybe independence, if you define freedom as independence, then you have set yourself up to be extraordinarily lonely. That's that's the argument there. We're talking to Dr. Tim Keller's new book is Making Sense of God, an Invitation to the Skeptical, and it is a must-read, especially if you have skeptics in your life or you know of skeptics, because it's a book that isn't a typical apologetics book. It's going below the surface with many folks, and it's dealing with their very existential needs and wants, and it does so in a very disarming way, so I highly recommend you get this book. Now, Tim, how long were you in... How long was this book going on in your head, and how long did it take you to put it down? Because it's so well-researched. I mean, you're quoting Charles Taylor. You're quoting uh, sociologists. You're quoting Habits of the Heart back from the 70s or 80s. And I mean, there's there's so much in here. You're quoting Nietzsche. How long did it take you to pull this together? Uh, well, to write the book, it was. I usually take about a year to write a book, uh-huh. um, basically. And it didn't take me longer. But probably what you mean is, uh, when it comes to pulling it together, about a year— but um, when I started, about three or four years ago, we started a, um, uh, a ministry here we call uh, Question Christianity. Mm-hmm. And Question Christianity you, you, uh, is where I'm giving talks, then you can ask questions. It's about the truth of Christianity or the relevance of Christianity. And um, it's, a, it's like a 30-minute talk by me. It's then you get to ask questions uh, for about 45 minutes, and then we break and eat and just talk. So it's mm-hmm. kind of an you know, evangelism apologetics thing. But the way we work it out is you can't come unless you bring a person who online registers as a self-identified non-Christian. In other words, the person, in other words, you can't just say, oh, I'm bringing a non-Christian friend. Mm-hmm. The person actually has to say, I am not a Christian. Okay. You know, and online. They, so that way we want to make sure that it, that more than six to more than 50% of the people in the room are not believers. Mm. And that, that has changed everything because we just are absolutely strict about that. Well, let's talk more about that. Let's talk more about that right after the break. Sorry, Tim, we're coming up to a hard break. Tim Keller's my guest. The new book, Making Sense of God, an invitation to the skeptical. It's outstanding. You want to get it. Good Christmas gift, by the way. Back in two minutes. Don't go. If you're low on the FM dial looking for NPR, go no further. We're actually going to tell you the truth here. That's our intent anyway. You're listening to Cross-Examine. With Frank Turek on the American Family Radio Network, our website, crossexamined.org. That's crossexamined with a D on the end of it.org. Merry Christmas to everyone. Hey, I want to keep you guys up to date. In the coming semester, we'll be visiting and doing I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist seminars at Appalachian State, Central Oklahoma, Wake Forest. 
where else are we going? We're going to George Mason. We're working on University of Arizona. Several other places. Keep an eye on the calendar. Also, the app, the Cross-Examined app. Download that, if you will. It's got the calendar on there. The podcast has the TV program. It's all up there, the Cross-Examined app. Tim, we're talking to Tim Keller. Tim, if people want to follow you, where do they go? I know you have a Twitter account. They go to Redeemer.com. Where do they go to, to learn more about what you're doing? Yeah, that's a good question. I do have a Twitter account, but I don't do too much of that. I mean, on a Twitter account, I don't don't do a lot of it here. I'm, you know, for example, I go speak somewhere. I don't put it on the Twitter account, so that's actually not a good place to go. Uh-huh. I don't, I don't do it that way. You know, I'm still until next year, I'm still the senior pastor of a of a church. Right. And though I do get around, I usually don't tell people where I'm going. Sounds sounds kind of weird. I just don't. Um, uh, I'm not in quite the same position I may be in a year or so. Okay. So there isn't really one place where you find out where I'm, where I'm going, what I'm doing, except when you watch the books come out. <laughs> well, actually, I saw something on the Gospel Coalition app today. You're going to be in Indianapolis for, uh, I think, in April yes. for uh, a conference. Yeah. So people can find you there. And yeah. uh, they can also find you at Redeemer uh, right there in Manhattan on certain yeah. Sundays, I'm sure. What You're, you're in... Uh, uh, three locations, I understand, and you're about to start a fourth, I think, correct? Yeah, right. But the, the three locations even now have eight services, so I only preach four every Sunday. Okay. I move around, so even there, it's not as... I, I, Frank, I really appreciate you <laughs> trying to help people find me, but it's, I'm just not as easy to find. I, I, it may change later on, but right now, as a pastor of this church, I feel like that's my job. Absolutely. And not to be a speaker at this point. So. Absolutely. I understand. All right. All right. The book, again, friends, is called Making Sense of God, An Invitation to the Skeptical. Now, Tim, before the break, we were talking about the fact that you're doing a forum for skeptical people. And I suppose right. this book kind of grew out of that forum. You got some ideas from the forum. Tell us a little bit more about that. And there may be pastors listening now who said, you know, we ought to do that. That's a good idea. How do you do that? Well, first of all, I have the people who organize it here in the church, they came up with the idea of saying, if you're going to make this, I bring a non-Christian friend to hear a presentation of the Christian faith. We want to make sure that, that the room has got a majority of people in it who are not Christians. That mm-hmm. affects the questions a lot. It affects everything. It makes the, the people who are skeptical feel like this is, I'm not over, overwhelmed or outnumbered. So we did have a, situ- a situation which you couldn't come unless you brought a a, uh, uh, everybody had a register online, and you couldn't bring unless you brought a person who mm-hmm. said, I'm not a Christian, online, self-identified. Uh, the question of Christianity, when we started doing it a few years ago, I, came, I started by doing the Reason for God kind of material, and I realized I wasn't starting back far enough. Mm-hmm. That I, that, that, that's when I started working on the meaning, um, the freedom. I started re- realizing I need to give folks, um, I need to compare their own secular beliefs on these other life issues with Christianity so that they could see that their own secular beliefs are not serving them very well, and Christianity would serve them better. And uh, so I started developing it that way. Also, in 2015, I did a series of uh, evening messages at Oxford University for uh, their university mission, and I did the very things. I did meaning, satisfaction, freedom, identity, and hope in five nights. And that grew out of the question of Christianity. And when I was done with that, I said, I need to write a book. Mm. So it came, and then I took a year to write the book. So it basically grew out of my evangelism of the last five years. 
In fact, it, I think I listened to one or saw one of those Oxford discussions online somewhere. It's probably on YouTube, friends. You can probably uh, Google it. Yeah, let's it's talk out about, there. Those things let, are out there. Let's talk about satisfaction. Mick Jagger, Mick Jagger mm-hmm. couldn't get any, but you can in this book, Chapter 4, Dr. Keller. And you make the point right off the bat. You say, after centuries, we've made very little progress making ourselves happy. Why is that? Well, I think it's it's interesting that people are not necessarily happier than they were three thousand years ago. Um, I don't think I think it'd be very hard. I, I nobody nobody doubts that the life expectancy used to be thirty one and now it's seventy one, and that that's better. But does that mean we're happier? Which is interesting. I mean, I would have thought that three thousand years ago, if you said we're going to develop a, a world in which you can live twice as long and you can have air conditioning and heat and all that, they would say, oh, my goodness, certainly I'd be happy in that situation. Yet, no matter how good our external circumstances are, we still find ourselves suffering with depression, suffering with anxiety, essentially not being any happier than our ancestors and maybe arguably less happy. And why is that? I mean, you point out that the suicide rate has increased 24% from 1999 to 2014. And we live in the most comfortable, most prosperous country in the world. Why is, why is this going on? What's, what's, the, what's the big void that, that uh, Augustine talked about that secular people yeah. don't seem to be able to fill properly? Well, I mean, when you, when you just simply lay that out, what we just did, which is to say, you know, we really, in spite of the fact that we're far richer and far safer and all that, that we really are not happier. Very few people deny that. Then you say, okay, here's St. Augustine. Uh, God, you made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless till they find, you know, they rest in thee. Mm -hmm. You say that, and then you say, wouldn't it be great to have a satisfaction that's not based in circumstances? Because the whole point is, that when your circumstances get better and better, they never make you as happy as you think they will. And when your circumstances do not, uh, you know, when they collapse, then you're really upset. And so either way, circumstances are a bit of a fool's, um, they're like fool's gold. They're, they're fool's gold, they don't really deliver and they change. And I said, wouldn't it be great to have a satisfaction and a peace and a contentment that's not rooted in circumstances at all? Now, by the way, there's other religions that offer this too, but the Christian approach is really, really, really uh, uh, attractive because we have a personal God of love. Um, and the other religions offer something something like it, but not the same. So I basically, in that chapter, just lift that up. And I really think that's a very attractive, if it's done well, very attractive to non-believers. In fact, you actually say this, you harm yourself when you love anything more than God. Explain that. Yeah, well, you know, it's funny. If you do, if you try to des- describe sin to a non-Christian as breaking God's law, which, by the way, it's, that's right, that's true. The Bible says sin is transgression of the law. They'll start to argue with you, say, well, who's to say what right and wrong is? Everybody's got a different set of standards. But if you say, hey, if there's a God and you love anything more than God, then you're turning that thing into a God and it's going to drive you. It's going to become like an addiction. If, if the main thing you love in life is financial success, it's going to drive you to the ground. It's going to become like a god. If the main thing is uh, romance, then the people you're falling in love with, it's going to drive you into the ground because you're going to have to have them love you. And if they break up with you, you're going to want to kill yourself. And when I start describing sin as idolatry, sin as 
putting something besides God in the place of God in your life, they get quiet. Mm-hmm. I mean, if I say sin is breaking the law, they, they argue. If I say sin is loving something more than God, they get quiet and they listen. And they begin to say, eh, mm-hmm. I don't know, there's a God. But you know what? That does explain a few things. Mm-hmm. In fact, I think you quote, uh, is it Marislav? Wolf in here, you say, attachment to God amplifies and deepens enjoyment of the world. It doesn't uh, diminish it. I think you say that it's not that we should love these things less, it's that we should just love God more. Yeah, and actually that's trying to deal, that that quote is trying to deal with a counterpoint. Uh That people say, well, if you love God more, that means you don't appreciate the world anymore. You you, You Christians, pie in the sky, by and by, you don't really love the world. And, and Miroslav makes a good case. He's quoting somebody else, but he says, for example, if you if your mother died, but you loved your mother, and you and you re, and you took a chair from her house and it's in your house now, mm-hmm. you love that chair, even though it's you know somebody else might come in and say, oh, it's a nice chair, and they sit on the chair. But for you, the presence of your mother comes to you through that chair in some ways, and that chair means something to you because of attachment to your mother. So it's even more special. It's not like you love the chair less. You love the chair more because you love your mother more. And then he goes and says, if you believe this world is given to you by God, God's behind the whole world, of course you're going to love the world. And in some ways, it's not going to just be raw material. It's a gift from God. And the idea that loving God more than the world means you love, you don't appreciate the world just doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Now, in the chapter in identity, in fact, you have two chapters in identity. The, the first one deals with the difference between the traditional way of getting in an identity and the modern way. And you say both are crushing. And there's a third way. But let's talk about those two ways, the traditional way and the modern way. What's the difference? Well, uh, if you go to a traditional society, and there are lots of them in the world, uh, a child grows up and says, who am I? And the parents are going to say, um, you are our son or our daughter, and um, you need to uh, – you, basically, you find your identity in, in your family. Mm. You, uh, if you're a good son, good daughter, and then you, you work for us and you help the family, and if you're basically a good son or daughter, then, then you're a good person, and you can feel good about yourself. That's the way traditional cultures are. That's pretty suffocating. Uh, you know, some of us know what that's like, where I, I have to marry the person my parents want, I have to do the career my parents want. That can be pretty suffocating. But the modern Western view of identity is you have to be true to yourself. Uh, you have to find out who you are. If you want to be, you know, an Olympic swimmer, you've got to go be an Olympic swimmer. If you, But then you know, there's other people who point out that, that modern Western, that's also crushing because now you have to accomplish everything. You have to, in a sense, earn your salvation. You don't get it from your parents who just say, good boy, good girl, which is suffocating, but at least in some ways less crushing um, than saying, I've got to go out and I've got to be a world beater and I've got to be beautiful and I've got to be handsome and I've got to be athletic and I've got to have a great, a great spouse. And, I, and it's, it's incredibly crushing. I would say, I'm trying to say in the chapter, that both of those approaches, I think, are nowhere near as liberating as the Christian approach, where, of course, is who I am in Jesus Christ, which is an achieved, not an achieved identity, which I have to accomplish, but a received identity through grace. And it's very well said. In fact, after the break, I want to ask you about this uh, thought experiment you have. It's actually on page 125 about the Anglo-Saxon warrior, because uh, that, that thought experiment is so revealing 
especially when today many people get their identity by their feelings or their mm-hmm. desires. And you, you point out a number of problems with that. And we'll, we're going to cover that after the break. We're, we're talking to Dr. Tim Keller. His new book is called Making Sense of God, an Invitation to the Skeptical. It is a prequel to the apologetics classic called The Reason for God. And ladies and gentlemen, this is an excellent book for Christmas, especially for those people who are thinkers that you know, who might not respond to a standard apologetics book. Even I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. They may not respond to that. But Tim Keller will get you thinking and get them thinking about the most important things in life and how their worldview doesn't measure up and Christianity does. So you want to get it. We're back in two minutes. Don't go. Making sense of God. How do you do it? How can you do it for someone who is resistant, a thinker, they're skeptical? How do you move them closer to Christ? The new book by Dr. Timothy Keller can do that. It's called Making Sense of God, an Invitation to the Skeptical. Tim, before the break, we were talking about this idea of identity. And uh, you have a, in fact, I saw, I think I saw you say this at Wheaton College. This is before the book came out. And then I saw you put it in the book, this thought experiment about the Anglo-Saxon warrior. Can you unpack that for us? You might put it at Oxford right on the spot because I was kind of under the gun. (laughs) <laughs> and I've been using it since then because it seemed to really connect. Well, here's the thought experiment. Imagine an Anglo-Saxon warrior in, a, you know, 700, 800 A.D., you know, walking through the middle of London, because it, London still existed back then. And he looks into his heart and he sees two feelings or two impulses. The one is he sees uh, aggression, that when people, people get in his way, he kills them. Okay, so he's very aggressive. He tends to kill people. <laughs> and the other... Uh, is his same-sex attraction. The other thing he notices in his heart is he's attracted, sexually attracted to, to men. So what he's going to do is he's going to look at the aggression and say, that's great. That's, what, that's me. Because this is a shame and honor culture. It's a warrior culture. And, 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 and being that aggressive actually is really what, just what my society wants. But the same-sex attraction? No. <laughs> I will. I will uh, that's not me. I'm going to suppress that. I'm going to hide that. But today, if a young man walks through the streets of London uh, and he looks into his heart and he sees anger and aggression that when people get in his way, he you know, tries to kill them, he's going to say, that's not me. I need therapy. I need to go to, you know, I need therapy. I got anger management. I got to do something. But if you see same-sex attraction, he says, that's me. Now, my point is that there's, when you look into your heart, there's lots of things in there and they contradict, frankly, and there's some good and there's some bad. And you're going to have to sift. You can't just look into your heart to decide who you are. You have to come into your heart with a set of values already. You have to come into your heart with a grid of moral values already by which you're sifting what parts of the heart are, quote, unquote, you and what parts are not you. And actually, the modern person who looks at it and says, oh, I'm, I'm gay, uh, but I'm not aggre- I want to deal with aggression. I want to get rid of that, but I'm gay. That person is no more liberated than the Anglo-Saxon warrior, because you're both doing basically what your culture tells you to do. You're both working off the cultural script, and you're not getting your identity from inside. You're getting your identity from what your culture tells you. That's the thought experiment. And I I, I saw you say this at Wheaton, that when you're um, changing your your identity because you're in the modern view that you can pick your own identity, what you're doing is you're just exchanging one set of cheerleaders for another set of cheerleaders. Yeah, you can see that actually online. When Uh you come out and say, 
I'm a, I'm trans, I'm a trans woman or yeah. I'm gay. Um, you'll get some people who insult you, but then you get another whole group of people who are cheering you. And Charles Taylor, you mentioned him already, a philosopher says the, the problem with the modern identity is it's very fragile and we need lots and lots and lots of affirmation because we've gone inside, we've made this decision mm-hmm. and now we come out and we demand recognition. Whereas if you go out to God and say, who am I? And God tells you through his word that you are made in my image and you were made for a relationship with me and uh, you, you believe in God through Jesus Christ and you become a Christian. Basically, God is recognizing you. God says, I love you. And even though it's hard to take um, you know, criticism from other people, you've, you've found your recognition in God. And therefore, though, it's good to get it from elsewhere. That's where the recognition comes from. But the modern identity, you go inside, you come out, and you have you, nobody has, there's nobody to validate you except everybody in the world. So you go around and you demand validation from everybody. It's one of the reasons why, you know, the, the modern identity is so angry mm. that you have to recognize me. Otherwise, you're, you're actually destroying me. It's because mm. you're, you've gotten your identity from inside, not from your family, not from the church, not from God. A great insight that, and this is again in Tim's new book, we're talking to Timothy Keller. His uh, book is called Making Sense of God, an Invitation to the Skeptical. So you mentioned that the traditional way to get identity is to go outward. The modern way to find identity is inward, but you say the right way is upward from God, which is what you were just saying here. Um, How does that, because in in, in that chapter, Tim, you say that... um, this is an identity that doesn't crush or exclude others. How does this identity from God, uh, does not, it doesn't crush or exclude others? No, it shouldn't. I mean, the, the point is, we, I think as soon as you, I say this, I think all Christian listeners have to realize we don't live completely out of our identity in Jesus. Right. And that's the reason why we are very often cast down by what other people say, or we do get caught up in the rat race for, for money and wealth and things like that. But the reality is, that if I feel good about myself because I'm a Democrat or a Republican, or I am uh, I'm for this or that political cause, or uh, then you're going to tend to look down. In order to feel good about your identity, you're going to look down at people who don't have yours. Mm-hmm. If you say, I'm a hardworking person, that's who I am. If that's your identity, then you're, anybody who you think is lazy, you're going to you're gonna have to despise them. Mm-hmm. So if you get your identity from any kind of finite thing in this world, you do it usually at the expense of somebody else. You shore up your sense of self-worth by despising people without your identity factor. See? But when Jesus, of course, it's, it's salvation by grace. You know, you're a sinner. You, don't, you deserve hell. And when I receive that free grace, then how can I look down at anybody? Uh, if, I, if I save myself by my good works, I might look down at people of other, you know, without my true religion and say, oh, you're awful. But when you say you're a sinner saved by grace, well, then to be true to that, you couldn't really despise anybody, or at least you couldn't feel superior to anybody. Mm -hmm. That's why I think the Christian identity keeps you from excluding other people. Someone said evangelism is just one beggar showing another beggar where the food is. That's what uh, it's supposed to be. Right. But Frank, you and I, you you and I know, and, and we may have gotten into it, it's that humility often is missing in evangelism. So, Oh, it is. Yeah. Yeah. My next book is uh, 10 steps to humility and how I made it in seven. 
So, <laughs> it's, which is actually humble of me. It only took me four. That's right. It's actually humble of me, Tim, because it only took me six. So, anyway, <laughs> now you I'm end the book, and I want to save a couple of minutes at the end for a new campaign you're working on. But you end the book in uh, really what was a concentration camp in China, uh, and yeah. you, you you end it talking about the ultimate the ultimate um, battle is between human pride. And God's grace, or the yeah. I guess the ultimate choice we have to make. Can you just give us a couple of minutes and unpack what happened there? Yeah, well, see, that's based on Langdon Gilkey wrote a book called Shantung Compound. He was a young humanist kind of skeptic who got thrown into a, uh, when the Japanese overran Manchuria, I think it was, or that part of China, in World War II, he was put in an internment camp. Mm-hmm. And when he was in there, he he uh, he really got shaken up. <laughs> uh he had a view that human beings were basically good and rational. And when in that sort of semi-concentration camp situation, he came to see human beings were absolutely selfish. And they just did not care about other people. They were just out to you know help themselves. And what was really surprising was a lot of the more religious people, there were priests and missionaries there, were every bit as selfish as everyone else, except they used religious... Uh, words to you know justify themselves, but there was a guy in the camp named Eric Little, mm-hmm. about whom Chariots of Fire, the whole movie's about him, right? Who really was saintly, really was saintly. He was very, very, and he died of a brain tumor tragically in the camp. But Landon Gilkey realized that religion has a. He says if it's possible for religion to be brought into the pride of a human a human heart. And to get proud of your religion, and then then religion is actually just part of the problem. In that. And and, you, and and the religious person who's proud is just as selfish, and just as bigoted, and just as mi- a big part of the problem in the world. But he says if true Christianity uh, humbles you because it's a matter of grace, not works, then you actually become part of the solution to the human problem. And folks, uh, if you really want a sense of that, get Tim's book, The Prodigal God, one of the most profound books you'll read on the centrality of grace to yep. the Christian faith. Uh, that's a fabulous book. And actually, I think there's a, you've, you've done several sermons on that, too, from the Prodigal uh, Son mm-hmm. passage. Mm-hmm. So, folks, search for that. That's another great book for Christmas, The Prodigal God. This one is called Making Sense of God, An Invitation to the Skeptical. And before we go, Tim, I just want to give you an opportunity to mention to, your, uh, to our audience what you're doing in New York and how you're trying to turn that city from 5% church attendance to 15%. You've got a, something called the Rise Campaign. Can you tell people about right. that and how they can get involved? Well, if you if you look up the Rise Campaign, there's a there's about a two-and-a-half-minute video. If you look up Redeemer, Rise Campaign, you'll find it. Okay. But basically, we, we came to see that in the central part of New York, now we're not talking about all of New York, but Manhattan, basically, right. where there's about a million people living, at least our part of Manhattan, we we discovered a few years ago that over the 20 years 20 over a 20 year period about less than 1% of the people went to an evangelical church and now um 5% of the population are going to an evangelical church it was took us 20 years to get there and we'd like to go we'd like to triple that in the next 10 years the only way that could happen was for the churches of the center city to come together and um we try to raise some money for that we're trying to put together a leadership pipeline, a way of training leaders here in the city. And, um, yeah, the goal is is to collaboratively 
triple the number of Christians and the percentage of Manhattan residents in gospel-believing churches. And um, we're on our way. I mean, you know, it's a huge goal. I don't know whether we'll make it or not, but I, I, we have we laid a very, very great uh, foundation last year. And so we're pretty excited about it. Well, you've got God involved, and you've got some great leadership there involved. And uh, that, as you've said before, uh, a lot of things begin in New York City and spread to the rest of the country. And you've got more images of God per square inch than any other place. So we've got to start making more of an impact in that city. So appreciate what you're doing, Tim. Thank Thank you so much. Thank you. And that's uh, Dr. Tim Keller, ladies and gentlemen. Again, his new book, which you want to get for Christmas, give it away, Making Sense of God, an Invitation to the Skeptical. And uh, it's a fabulous read. Uh, If you want to go more into the evidence directly for Christianity, it's called The Reason for God. And then, of course, The True Meaning of Christmas. He has a new book on Christmas you can Google, but also The Prodigal God is another book you want to get.